Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 59 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Unstoppable Force, an interview with Cassidy Colbert. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Today's podcast guest is Cassidy Colbert. Cassidy Colbert is a 21-year-old woman from Damascus, Maryland. Despite suffering from chronic Lyme disease since she was 14 years old, she is incredibly accomplished. She is a college student, a social media coordinator, an officer in a leading Lyme education not-for-profit, a Lyme educator, lecturer, blogger, and team Lyme disease support group administrator. As the vice president and social media coordinator for LEAF, the Lyme Education Awareness Foundation, she traveled over 11,000 miles this summer to provide Lyme education to over 4,000 children in 25 American cities. She is the author of the powerful Lyme disease blog, the Lyme Diary, and she is the founder and administrator of the Lyme Disease Facebook group, Teens with Lyme. This year, New York State's largest township acknowledged Ms. Colbert's many contributions to the Lyme disease community by naming August 8th, Cassidy Colbert Day. Hey, Cassidy, and welcome to the program. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. So Cassidy, where do you live? I live in a very rural farm town called Damascus, Maryland. We're like an hour outside of DC. And have you grown up in that community, or is that some place that you just recently moved to? I have lived here my whole life, born and bred. My parents are from like half hour away, closer to D.C., and them and all of their friends moved here once they all got married and started having children. Cassidy, are you currently going to school? Yes. So I am actually right now in my last semester uh, to get my associate's degree from our local community college, Montgomery College. So I've been here off and on for the past like four and a half years now. And what's your plan after you complete your studies at the community college? So we actually have this local college in my area called the Universities at Shady Grove, which is a satellite campus for a whole bunch of different Maryland universities. So I'll actually be getting my degree now from the University of Maryland, but I'll just be going to the Shady Grove campus so I can still live at home. Cassidy, what are you studying now that you're doing your undergraduate work? I am a communication major. So my plan used to be that I would, I wanted to make movies, but now since I've had my Lyme, I really enjoy all the advocacy work and I've witnessed all the struggle that people in our world are going through. And I would really like to be able to do more to help those people and to shine some more light on all the chronic illnesses that are out there that people just look over and don't think are as serious as they really are. So I would really like to do more work with advocacy. Cassidy, can you tell us a little bit about your family? Because tick diseases are family diseases, we, we like to explore the family and the family impact of Lyme disease. So can you share with us who do you live with and what type of relationships you have with your family? Sure. So I am uh, one of three. I have an older sister, Taylor, and an older brother, Dustin. And when I first got sick, it was all of us were living here. My sister was at college. And then, so I live with my parents and then my siblings, and then my brother went away to college, then it was just me and my parents, but then my grandparents ended up moving in with us, so I lived with my Grammy and my pop-pop moved in with us too. At one point, my brother-in-law and my sister were living with us before they got married, but we are very close, so my sister got married four years ago, and she moved about two miles down the road, and now she has two children, and I live there pretty much half of the week because I nanny those kids. So they're all my best friends. Cassidy, does anyone else in your family have a tick disease? 
No, not that we know of. My um, grandmother, my mom's mom that lived with us, she actually passed away last November, but she was very sickly and she always had a lot of issues and she was actually born in New York and visited upstate New York and stuff a lot. And I'm convinced that she had Lyme because she had Parkinson's and all kinds of issues with her knees and all these other crazy things, but we never found out for sure. Cassidy, can you share with us what your goals were before you were diagnosed with a tick disease? Of course. So I had, I would say I had a timeline for my life. And my timeline was that I was going to graduate high school. I was going to go to Salisbury University where everyone else in my family went. I was going to major in communications, minor in like uh, marketing and management or business. And then I was going to, I wanted to have an internship every year with like a different medium to decide which one I liked. And then I was going to get a job with like a magazine or television or something and make movies, be married by the time I was like 23, have kids by the time I was like 25, have a house, live everywhere cool and travel a lot. What were your internal goals? I mean, how did you want to develop as a person before you had your Lyme disease diagnosis? You know, I've never really thought about that. I was so young when I got sick that I just, I think I was very self-centered at the time and didn't really think that far ahead or about myself. I just wanted to, I grew up surrounded by a lot of really amazing people and a lot of love. And I think that that's all I really strived for was to like have love, which is kind of cheesy, but. (laughs) So when did you first start to exhibit the symptoms of, of your tick disease? So in May of 2012, I started getting headaches that wouldn't go away and I was 14 at the time and then from there it just kind of like spiraled out and just kept getting worse and worse and worse with pretty much any symptom you can think of but they actually one doctor said that I they think that I got bit when I was three or four years old because my symptoms were so severe by the time they started coming out and I was always a sick kid and always had really random things here and there. So I guess my symptoms could kind of, we could kind of say they were always throughout my life. There was one point when I had strep for like six months straight when I was in fourth grade and it just like wouldn't go away. They gave me all these antibiotics, all kinds of things, and it just would not go away. So they finally had to take my tonsils out. When I was in fifth grade, I had headaches that wouldn't go away for months. And we like, I had to go to a neurologist and also have like CAT scans and everything and they couldn't find anything, and then they randomly stopped one day. Um, When I was in middle school, I ended up being in, like, boots and braces a lot because they said I had tendinitis in my um, ankle and in my knee and, like, all kinds of crazy stuff with that. So it was just always very weird. I always had weird skin things. I had this one rash at one point that they said, they asked me if I had been around any soldiers from Iraq because, like, it came back positive with a strain of an illness from Iraq but I was like no like I live in Damascus I don't see people so but 14 is when it really started coming out and would not go away. So how did the symptoms that began to develop aggressively when you were 14 change your perspective on the world and change the goals you had set for yourself? They pretty much took everything I ever saw and just completely erased them so when I first got sick I had these headaches and they were so bad that I could not even like lay my head on my pillow. I couldn't sleep anymore. I ended up, I was playing, I had just finished my softball season actually when they started. I couldn't play sports anymore. So that whole summer was spent 
going to doctors. I was in the ER a bunch of times. I had a spinal tap done that summer. Like I was just, that was when I was first emerged into the world of the doctor's visits and the money and not knowing what was going on and people looking at me like I was crazy. So that really started wearing down on my mental health too. And then by the time the next school year rolled around, I would be sleeping like 20 hours a day. I was a straight A student, like never really missed school. And I was always very on top of things. And I would wake up in the morning, my alarm would go off and I would just start crying because I was so tired and I was in so much pain and I would just, I couldn't do it. So I ended up during one quarter of school, I ended up missing 29 days in one class because I would sleep through my first two or three classes every day. So luckily I ended up having to get a uh, 504 plan, which is like an accommodation plan through my high school. So they worked with me and then I ended up actually having to get an abbreviated schedule. So I didn't even have the first two classes anymore so that I could actually sleep in, but sometimes I still wouldn't even make it through the day. So it's amazing that I made it through high school and I ended up ending up my high school career with straight A's still, but I was unable to do sports. I played sports my whole entire life. I played basketball. I played softball. I love softball and I couldn't do anything. I tried, I think a year into my Lyme journey, I tried to uh, go to the batting cage and hit some balls around and I hit maybe like five pitches and I broke down in tears and I was in so much pain and I couldn't even get out of bed for like four days after that just from trying to hit the softball. So Cassidy, all of these things that were taken away from you during this period of your childhood, what impact did it have on the goals that you had set for yourself and your belief that you could accomplish the goals you had set for yourself? I didn't think that I was going to be able to, one, graduate high school. I didn't think I was going to be able to ever go to college. I didn't think that I would be able to have like I at one point I had a dream of opening my own restaurant someday like I didn't want to be the cook I just wanted to own and manage a restaurant I had this whole vision for it I didn't think that was going to be able to happen I didn't think that any of the dreams that I had anymore were going to happen I just thought that I was going to be this invalid that needed help to do everything I needed help to get out of bed I literally had to be like lifted out of bed each day I needed people to wash my hair for me people had to brush my hair for me sometimes people would have to dress or undress me my goals just kind of changed to these amazing dreams for my future to just waking up that next day or like maybe actually brushing my own hair one day. Cassidy, what did you know about ticks and tick diseases prior to the onset of your symptoms? I didn't know much, but the area that I live, like I said, it's very rural and we actually know quite a few people who had Lyme. Well, now we know a ton of people that have Lyme, but when I first got diagnosed, we knew a handful of them. And we actually knew one woman who was a family friend of ours that she actually had chronic Lyme, but we still didn't understand the extent of how bad it was. We knew like she would have to like travel to Florida to go to the doctor. And we were like, why does she have to travel so far to go to a doctor if we have like Hopkins right here or Georgetown University Hospital right here? And it wasn't until I got sick and got into the thick of the treatment process that we realized this is what she was really going through. But when I first got diagnosed, like the official Lyme diagnosis, I remember I like laughed and smiled and had like this like big woohoo because in my mind I was like they're just going to give me a few weeks of antibiotics and I'll be I'll be set to go. I know people who have had Lyme before. My cousin for instance, she had Lyme. She was out of school for like 2 weeks and she was totally fine after that and she's been symptom free since then and she was like 6 when that happened and so I thought that was going to be me and I was very very wrong. 
Cassidy, how did your Lyme symptoms that became chronic when you were 14 impact your parents? Oh, (laughs) they impacted them very much. So my parents ended up becoming my sole caregivers, my mom especially. And so my mom worked out of the home. My dad actually owns and runs his own company inside the home. And I would wake up, my alarm would go off. And I would call my mom at work. She would then call my dad. My dad would have to come upstairs and physically get me out of bed each morning. He would have to take care of me like that. My mom would have to take me to all of my doctor's appointments. They have to pay for everything, which is not cheap at all. It's caused a lot of financial stress on our family and those such things. But I've seen my mom cry because she doesn't know how to fix. We've literally just sat and held each other as we both cry because I'm in pain and she doesn't know how to fix my pain because that's all a mother wants to do is make sure that their child is okay and she doesn't know how to make me be okay. So we are very close as a family. We were close before this, but I think this has actually caused us to be a lot closer because I have been so vulnerable and they have had to take care of me so much. And I'm very grateful for that for them, but it has been very stressful at times too. Cassidy, how did your tick disease impact your siblings? So kind of the same thing. Well, it was kind of hard because when I first got sick, my sister was away at college. So she wasn't there for some of it. And then my brother was around, but he was doing like sports and stuff. But so then my sister, she would at times have to literally like, we have pictures of it. She would wash my hair for me. She would have to brush my hair for me. I think she even used to have to dress me at times. And then my brother actually went to school to become a physical therapist. So I would be in pain and he would, he, he always is trying these little things to try to make me feel better and like giving me these little stretches or exercises to try to do. He always would like find articles. He actually would do projects at school online just to try to find things to help me feel better because he saw how hard it was for me and how much pain I was in. And they just, everybody just wanted to make sure that I was okay. And even my brother-in-law, who has been in my life for over 10 years now, he would have to, we also have pictures of this. He literally, at one point, he had to carry me when I was paralyzed, like up and down the steps, or like they would have to carry me to the bathroom so that my mom and sister could then take me to the bathroom because I couldn't even do that by myself. So my whole family, I have a really great support system that a lot of people with Lyme don't get to have, and I am so grateful for that. Cassidy, do you think your siblings ever resented you because you required so much time and energy and attention from your parents and I guess from them? I don't think that they ever resented me for the attention, but I think because of the money aspect, like the money part, I guess, like we've had money troubles because of how expensive my treatment is. We have a bill for over $63,000 from my second pick line that I had. And that's like just that's just from one treatment option. That's not even including the last seven years. So we've all had to like experience kind of this hardship of what it's like to not have money at times. And I think they resented me for that at times, which I also resent myself for that because I hate that I put that financial pressure on everybody in my family. Cassidy, how has your tick disease impacted you socially and how has it impacted the friends that you developed before you got sick? I pretty much stopped having a social life. So my sophomore year of high school was spent in my bedroom with the lights off, watching pretty much sad movies, crying into my pillow all day. And that was about it. Throughout high school, I had, I've had one best friend my entire life for 
20 years now we've been friends and she was still there and then I I had friends before I got sick and I had teammates and stuff but when you're not in school people they forget about you we're all all in high school you are really self-centered you just care about yourself and you want to do whatever is like everyone else is doing and I wasn't there so people just would kind of forget about me I had uh, I had a boyfriend in high school and it was pretty much just like that with him and my best friend I had two best friends and the, that was it. That was my social interaction and my family. And now it's pretty much the same still. I have my one best friend. I have my sister. I have my mom. I have my brother and my brother-in-law and then my niece and nephew. And that's about it. So Cassidy, how did you manage to get through high school if you were paralyzed and had to be carried to the bathroom and had to have your sister brush your hair? So the paralysis didn't actually happen until college. But the other stuff, like the fatigue and stuff was there. But I actually, my town is a very small town and everybody knows everybody and everybody is very helpful. And my guidance counselor at the high school, he knew my family, knew what was going on and he was amazing at helping us. So he got me the 504 plan. He was able to get me the abbreviated schedule, which made it so that I could actually kind of make it to class. I didn't have to start school until I think it was like 9.30 or 10 instead of like the 7.30 that other people were having to go to. So I was able to get a few more hours of sleep. And my teachers were just, I'm, I'm so grateful for everything from that because my teachers were so amazing with everything. They totally understood what was going on. They worked with me so much. And I just, I guess not to toot my own horn, but I also pushed through and persevered that I, I, I think I got maybe two Bs my entire experience in high school and the rest of them were all A's despite having this illness so it wasn't from lack of me working I was fighting this disease and working through school as well and Cassidy you first got sick when you were 14 and you were a freshman in high school and you got diagnosed that same year correct yeah so I also had a lucky experience with that because I know people that went years and years with this diagnosis so I got started showing symptoms in May and got diagnosed in October that following October so it was pretty much the whole summer I went through the misdiagnosis process and saw, I think it was like 10 or 12 doctors or something within that time frame, and then finally got the diagnosis that October. So you saw between 10 and 12 doctors throughout that summer before you got your Lyme diagnosis. What eventually triggered Lyme disease? Was it something that you or a family member or a friend thought of, or was it finally a thought of a doctor that you saw that thought Lyme disease? So, like I said, we've always had, we always like kind of knew people that are like Lyme had been talked about where I live, like we knew people that had had it and stuff. So it was kind of always in the back of my mom's mind. And then like, at one point, I remember I was crying, laying in my sister's bed with my mom and my sister. And my mom was just like Googling things over and over again, like trying to figure it out. This was like, I had just been diagnosed with a chronic tension headache. And I was just like, they can't, like, I'm just going to have this for the rest of my life. Like, what am I supposed to do? And she, every time she would look it up, like Lyme just kept like popping up somewhere. And finally, I was at Georgetown seeing a pediatric or rheumatologist because they told me that I had this disease called ankylosing spondylitis, which is this horrible autoimmune disease. But there's actually a definitive test for it. And if they do an MRI and if your sacroiliac joint is fused together, you have it. So on my x-ray, it looked like it was fused together, but they like wouldn't do the MRI. So my mom, who was like my warrior fighter throughout these past seven years with doctors, and she like fought the doctor to get me this MRI because she wanted the definitive test done for it. They finally did it. 
the test showed that I didn't have it. And when we were checking out, the guy handed my mom this slip and it said like my reason for my visit and he marked off fibromyalgia. And my mom had read enough that she was like, I think that we need to talk to someone. I think you have Lyme disease. And so we have a friend who is an ER doctor. And so she actually has Lyme as well. So my mom told her my whole story, told her about everything I had been misdiagnosed with. And she was like, okay, bring her in to see me. I want to like check her out for myself. And she did. And she said, I think you have Lyme disease. Then she told us the doctor to go to because there was a Lyme literate doctor in my area. And that's how I got my unofficial first diagnosis. And once you went to this Lyme literate doctor, did they perform any sort of testing to confirm the Lyme disease diagnosis? Yeah. So throughout the summer, I had been tested for Lyme five times and every one of them was not CDC positive. And then when I went to this doctor, he saw that and he was like, well, you can't have a little bit of Lyme or a lot of Lyme. If you show up with one band, you have Lyme. And so then he also sent my blood out to Igenix and Igenix Lab in California where they do more thorough testing of it. And that is when I got my official Lyme diagnosis. And I think that's when I also got my Babesia diagnosis as well. And at this point, once you had this definitive diagnosis with Lyme and Babesia, what was your treatment plan with this Lyme litter doctor? So pretty much over the last seven years, pretty much any antibiotic that you say, I've been on. <laughs> so it, in the beginning, I'm pretty positive it was Doxy, Tindamax, and I'm going to forget all of them because there's so many of them. But I know I was on Doxy and Tindamax for a long time. I was on Nephron for the Babesia, which I absolutely hated. That was like the worst thing. I would go to school sometimes. And like the Mepron would have got on my clothes or something or like stained my hands. And I don't know if you guys have ever had to take Mepron, but it literally looks like yellow paint and it stains things like paint does. So I would like go to school and have like yellow just everywhere. And I was just like, this is great. I'm already the weird girl that's sick. And now I'm the weird girl that's covered in yellow. But I was on Rifampin at one point, but that really, 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 really messed me up. I was, I literally took one dose of that and then I was in my bed for two weeks. That's how bad it was for me. So when you started these antibiotics, I'm guessing you started to feel worse before you got better. Yeah, very much so. So I was there for a few months and we were still so new and I didn't really know what was going on. I just kept telling my mom, I was like, I feel so bad. And my mom did a lot of research. She's awesome. And so we like had heard about herxing, but like we didn't really know if this was herxing or whatnot. And I just remember just, I would just lay in my bed for days, weeks at times, because I just felt so terrible. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. I was 14 still. So I, I was just so confused. And I was in my mind, I was like, I'm only going to need this for a few weeks and then I'll be fine. And here I was just getting worse and worse. So we ended up leaving that doctor and going, cause my mom also didn't like that. I was being on the, like such a high dose of these antibiotics for so long. And little did she know that I was going to have to be on them for so many years. But so we left there, went to a homeopathic doctor because actually my um, high school health teacher had Lyme. She was wheelchair bound from it. And this homeopathic doctor helped her actually like, get out of the wheelchair and she's fully functioning. So she like told us about him. So we tried that out. I was doing these homeopathic drops and sprays for a few months. They were ridiculously expensive. I noticed literally nothing from them. And from then we ended up going to see another doctor in my area. He's not actually a Lyme literate doctor, 
but he knows a lot about Lyme. So, and he actually took insurance. So it was like a win-win situation for us. So we went to him for a few months and he was really, really awesome. He helped us figure out a lot of stuff. He actually diagnosed my Bartonella, which I didn't know that I had at the time, but he diagnosed that. And then I started getting more more neurological symptoms. And he actually told us, he said that he didn't feel comfortable treating those because he wasn't as educated in those. So he actually helped us get into Dr. Shore's office in Reston, Virginia. And I saw a doctor in that office. So that was like my second official Lyme literate doctor. And I was with her for two years. I did a lot of oral antibiotics with her. I did clindamycin, amoxicillin, zithromax. I think I did like clarithromycin. I think Seftonir is that one. I'm just like trying to think of these names off the top of my head. But um, I did a bunch with her. And with her is when I ended up getting my first pick line because I was in like a plateau for a very long time. Did any of these doctors throughout the course of time you went through these four or five different doctors suggest to you that you'd want to take care of your gut health while being on these strong antibiotics? They always told me to be on probiotics. So I was always on probiotics and like the different kinds, like some Theralax for a long time. There was another one with Theralax that I never remember the name. VHL number three I did for a really long time. I still take probiotics today, but that was like all they really suggested. And then this doctor in Reston was the first one that really suggested I change my diet up. So we had always like heard from other people about no gluten and stuff like that. But at this point, I wasn't actually having stomach problems yet. So this was like, I think a year and a half or two into my journey and my stomach was still okay. So I was once again, like a 15, 16 year old girl. I was like, I'm not going to stop eating things that I want to eat. I want to be able to like eat cookies if I want to or whatever. So I tried to go gluten free for like two weeks. I quit. I said, this is stupid. It's pointless. And then a few months later, I started having the stomach pains and stomach problems. And the doctor looked at me and she said, are you gluten free? I said, no. She said, what about sugar-free? I said, no. She said, I'm going to explain something to you. She said, the bacteria feeds off of these things. It feeds off of gluten. It feeds off of sugar. So when you eat those things, you are feeding the bacteria that we are trying to kill. So you can take all of these medicines and stuff, but if you don't change your diet, it's just going to keep growing back up again. And we're just going to be going around in this circle over and over again. So that was really the one switch that got me. And now I've been gluten-free for like six years. Did any of your doctors discuss with you detox options to help you with the Herx reactions? They had me do Berber and Panella drops. I don't know if you guys know what those are, but those I literally noticed like nothing from. And like, it's so funny because my mom would like ask other adults about them and they all would be like, Berber and Panella saved my life, blah, 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 blah. And I would ask other kids about them and they'd be like, I never noticed anything with them. So I thought that was really interesting. Like there must be something with between like the child system and the adult that like it doesn't work but so they would have me do those I was on charcoal for a long time I would do chlorella to like bind it all up and try to flush it out because we also found out within this time that I had MTHFR the gene mutation which makes it so you can't really detox either so they had me on b12 and b12 shots for a long time they would have me do the glutathione drips but those actually never really helped me. It would help me for like an hour afterwards and then it would stop. So I was like, I'm not going to spend the money for this just to feel good for an hour. So that was all that doctor. But it wasn't until a few doctors later that 
we got more into the detoxing and um, that's when I learned about the infrared saunas. I would do detox baths also the whole throughout the whole time. I would literally take Epsom salt baths like sometimes like three times a day because it would help with my pain and it would just make me feel so much better. But once I got paralyzed, I stopped having to take the Epsom salt baths. So I can talk about that more when I talk about my paralysis. But so then I had to find something else to detox with. And that's when I found out about infrared saunas. And I love them so much. I will feel terrible. I will not be able to read. Like last Sunday, I felt so sick. I could not get my eyes to focus on anything. I was exhausted and I had a huge test I needed to study for. And I was like, what is going on? So I actually bought myself an infrared sauna, real infrared sauna for my house a few years ago. And I got into my sauna, sat in there for like a half hour, 40 minutes, sweated so much. And I came out and I feel like a new person. Detoxing, I think, is like the main key for me that's made me feel so much better and has helped me get to where I am. Because that's detoxing right now is pretty much like the only, if you can even call it, treatment form that I do. Because it helps me feel so much better. When I sweat, I feel like a different person. I think that kind of goes hand in hand with the MTHFR uh, genetic disorder that you mentioned earlier. Can you explain for our listeners what that is and what that gene is and what it means for you? I can try. I'm not good with the scientific medical terms, but so what I've gathered from the doctors over the years, it makes it so you can't really detox. So when all the Lyme bacteria is dying off, my body has no way of expelling it. So it doesn't, it just kind of sits there. Doctors used to tell me all the time, they'd be like, you're toxic, you're toxic. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. Like, just help me figure out what that means and how I can fix that. So I kind of, I guess, took it upon myself. I would go on Pinterest and look up like weird drinks to make, to like make myself detox, like drinking apple cider vinegar and all kinds of things. Cause I just like, I don't know what this means. So B12 is, it also affects your body's production, I think, or methylation of vitamin B12, which helps gives you energy and stuff. So they would give me B12 and B12 shots. But then I ended up having the 23andMe test done at one point. And they like sent it off to some doctor who like looks at all your other gene mutations and stuff. And I have another gene mutation that goes along with MTHFR that makes it so that my body can't activate B12. So I was doing these shots for like years of B12, not noticing anything because my body can't activate the B12 either. So that was a fun when I found that out. I think that's really important because so many of our past guests have mentioned certain things that have helped them, whereas other guests have mentioned it hasn't helped them at all. And I think understanding your specific DNA is so valuable and doing a test like the 23andMe and sending it away to a doctor who can understand and interpret the results can help you understand and come to conclusions about why certain treatment options aren't helping you specifically, as you just mentioned with your B12 injections and also your, your detoxing problem. So I think that um, in your case, it helped you avoid really wasting money and time on doing certain therapies that wouldn't have been helpful because of your genetic makeup. Yes, it really did. And it also helped us to realize that we needed to look somewhere else to try to help this methylation issue and, and the detoxing. Like I need to find other ways of doing that. So that really helped us. It also, that when we had that test done, showed us, I had a few other gene mutations as well. So we were like trying to treat all of those and I was doing, it was like a mix of antibiotics and herbs at the time to try to treat that stuff as well. But it was definitely, when we found that out, we were so upset because we had been wasting so much money on these shots. So it was really awesome to be able to find that out. So once you figured that out and you were on, um, I think you left off where you start, you got a pick line in to get IV antibiotics because the oral antibiotics were getting you a little bit better and then you plateaued. 
How did the IV antibiotics help you? Did you feel worse for a little bit? Did you feel better? Can you walk us through how that went for you? Yes. So the doctor that I was going to would have, I always tell the story. So they had a symptom questionnaire. And each time before your visit, you would have to fill it out and like you rate, rate your symptoms. And the higher the number, the worse off you are. So my numbers were always in like the 50s. One time I think it even made it into the 60s. And like, I think at that time it was just like staying in the 40s and wasn't going anywhere. After one month with my pick line, my number dropped to the 20s. By the time that I was done with that pick line, my number was three. It, I was on IV Rocephin for nine months, and it was the best thing that, like, that, that it was the best I had ever felt in the Lyme journey until I would say maybe how I am right now. It helped me so much, and I would, I, like, I don't think I would be where I am today if I did not do that. One of the things that I've learned, Cassidy, is that when you have neurological symptoms, IV antibiotics are the most effective because they can break the blood-brain barrier, whereas oral yeah. antibiotics have a much harder time doing that. So do you think that's really why you struggled for so long on oral antibiotics, and once your fourth or fifth doctor gave you the pick line, you felt so much better? 100%, I think that. It definitely, the blood-brain barrier, the oral antibiotics could not break it, and I had been on them for... I think I had been on them for like two and a half or three years and just wasn't getting, they weren't getting anywhere anymore. And, and that was also my senior year of high school. I ended my senior year of high school with my pick line. I went to prom with my pick line. I graduated with my pick line. So Cassidy, what made you go to 23andMe to run that genetics test? It was the doctor that I was going to actually that told us that she wanted us to do it. And she actually like knew this doctor that would then look at your results and like interpret them for us and stuff and we've like I, I can't we've been trying to find them the results for so long so I want to see them and we can't my mom has like a big folder somewhere hidden in her closet with like all my information and we have been trying to like find everything to put together in like a binder because I want to see it but we end up for that test it was like I think $400 for the 23andMe and then to have this guy interpret it for us but we found out so much information so it was really worth it. Did you have to travel to go meet with this doctor to interpret the results or is that just over the phone? No, so he actually just like, my results just got from the test, just got sent to him and then he interpreted them and sent them back to us. So I don't even know who this doctor is. That was all inclusive. It was $400 for the test and the interpretation by the doctor? Yes. If our listeners want to know more about this, they can contact you, I guess, or contact us through the contact form to learn more about this doctor and how to get this test run themselves because this is a recurring theme we keep hearing. For sure, always. I'm always open to talk to people about this stuff. So now, stepping back to your senior year in high school, you had the pick line in, you're feeling so much better because you're finally getting the IV antibiotics to help you with your neurological symptoms. Can you walk us through what happens next? So I graduated high school in May of 2015, and I was doing so great. I was planning on going to Salisbury University like I had planned. And so like three weeks before I was supposed to move into school, I was doing a phone consult with my doctor. We were talking and we said that we thought I was doing so well, I could get the pick line taken out. And then we would just do maintenance with antibiotics, oral antibiotics for a few months. And then she thought I would be in the clear. This phone call, she also told us that she would be leaving the practice. And I had been with this doctor now for, I think, two years. That was like a huge, like, kind of blow to me and my mom. We both just like sat there and cried. But we were like, this is a good thing. This is a huge turning point. Like, I'm coming to the end of this journey. Well, then I got to school. I was doing great for like two weeks. And then it was like I fell off of a cliff. 
and everything started getting bad again. I was exhausted. I was in so much pain. I was so nauseous. I literally survived off of clementines, which is like nothing. My mouth was like torn up from the acid, but that's like the only thing I could eat. They would make me feel not nauseous. So I was like surviving off of clementine and ginger tea all the time, all day, every day. That's all I would drink and eat. Luckily for me, my brother was also in his senior year at Salisbury at the time. So him and his friends, they would take really good care of me. And my cousin was also there too. My whole family went there. But they would take really good care of me. So my brother would have me like come over to his house sometimes. And he would do some of like the physical therapy stuff, I guess, to me and try to help me feel better. They would try to make me things to eat. But I ended up coming home from school. So Salisbury is about three hours away from my house. And I, that whole semester, I spent one weekend at school. The rest of the time I had to come home. I came home every single weekend, partially because I had the I was able to take my Epsom salt bath at home because I didn't have a bathtub in my dorm room at school. So I would do that, but just also to like be around my mom and my family to be able to take care of me because I just felt so terrible. And then a few weeks before, oh, so in this time, I ended up finding another doctor to go to because my other doctor that I had been going to left. I found a new doctor. I started back on antibiotics and herbs and So we were starting that whole process over again. And then towards like the end of the semester, I was unable to read anymore. I was like trying to do my homework and I like physically could not read. It would make me sick. Like I would try to read. My eyes would like basically like kind of like spin out. Like I felt like I was going to pass out and I like I could not do it anymore. So that was fun trying to finish a college semester, not being able to read. And then I came home one night, my high school football team made it to the state championship game and so I came home to go to that football game we chartered a bus everybody chartered a bus to go to the game in the bus ride home was the first time I ever got paralyzed my brother-in-law had to carry me out of the bus we got back to my house carried me upstairs to my mom's bed and I laid there paralyzed for a few hours just crying because I had no idea I thought I was going to die I was like I can't move I don't know what's going on and my mom just laid with me while I sat there and cried until I came out of the paralysis and then she said that's it you're not going back to school and I did not my professors at Salisbury were really good and I once again had straight haze so they one professor actually didn't even make me take a final he said I know you would pass I know you'd get an A on the test anyway you don't have to take it one professor put my test online for me So I was able to take it at home. So that was good. And then one professor, I actually still had to go in and take it, but I had to go back to school to pack up my room anyway. So my mom drove me back to school. I took that test and then we packed up and I came home. And like a week later, I got my second pick line in. Cassidy, what was it like when you were on the bus returning home with the football team and and all of your, your hometown friends and realizing when the bus arrived that you couldn't move? It was after absolutely terrifying. I was scared out of my mind. I was 17. I could not move. I didn't know what was going on. And I also didn't, like the team had just won the game. I didn't want all the attention to be on me. I didn't want people to look at me with pity in their eyes. So I was trying to be quiet about it. So we waited. I made my family wait until everybody else had gotten off the bus and then had them take me off the bus because I didn't want others to have to like see me. I was very I I was just so like upset and distraught about it. And like I said, like I literally, I I thought I was going to die. I was like, I don't, I don't know what's happening to me right now. It was absolutely terrifying. And it still is every single time I get paralyzed. 
I have those feelings kind of because it's just it's it's not a good feeling when you can't move. And you went then and got your second pick line put in shortly after this. Did the mm-hmm. symptoms improve or did you have more herxing and get even worse before you improved again from the second pick line? So the second pick line, we actually found out that the reason why it was like I fell off a cliff was that I was exposed to mold when I went away to school. So through the pick line, we first had to attack the mold. So I was treating the mold toxicity through the pick line. Then we ended up adding in like the antibiotics as we were going. So it was a lot slower healing process than it was with the first pick line. So it took a while. And through that, I was still like, I think I would get paralyzed like once a week at this point. It was like every Wednesday. It was like a weird, I have no idea. But so like that was happening. And also one just little fun tidbit that when I had my first pick line, I forgot to mention this, we found out that, found out the very hard way that I am allergic to rubbing alcohol and adhesives. So they come out every week and they change the dressing on your pick line and they would rub it down with the alcohol. They put the new thing on it. And at one point my arm was literally like, I asked my mom to cut my arm off because it was like red, it itched, it hurt. My arm was throbbing and it turned out because I was allergic to that. So I had like to have a whole, like the head nurses would have to come out to me to change my dressing because we had to come up with this whole concoction of way of changing my pick line and stuff. So it was like a whole process. I also had to go through on top of all of this stuff every week. But this is also when I started, I think, doing the saunas. So that would help me a little bit. But then towards, so I had that pick line in also for nine months. And towards the end of that nine months, I was once again kind of in a plateau. And we were just like, I don't really know where to go from here. So my doctor was like, I think we were like kind of, my mom and I were talking. I was like, maybe is it time to like get the pick line out? Like, what do we do next? And that's when we found out that I had a blood clot in my lung. So I then had to get the pick line removed anyway. And so pretty much any progress that I had made physically, like the neurological stuff was much better. I was able to read again. I wasn't getting paralyzed. That was fine. But once I got the blood clot, it was very hard for me like to walk even like short distances. I would get out of breath very fast. Like my, I had a lot of chest pain all the time. I was very, I had lightheadedness and stuff for just, so that kind of brought everything back down again. So then from there, I ended up doing, I think, herbals for a little while. Didn't really notice much change. And then at one point, I just told my mom, I said, I'm done. I said, I'm, I'm done doing, taking pills. I'm done with treatment right now. I was like, I just can't do it anymore. So I actually stopped doing treatment for about it was like, I think it was for like 10 months, I stopped doing treatment. Have any of your doctors ever identified the cause of your paralysis? Yeah, so during that 10 month period of stopping treatment is when I started getting my paralysis again. And this is, it was every single day. So I backtrack a little bit. So I started school again. After my second pick line that following fall, I came home from Salisbury, took that spring off, and then I started school at Montgomery College, my community college. So I was there, and this was my third semester in a row, I was there. That, like, November, I started getting paralyzed, and it was every single day. So this was November of 2017. And it was every single day I would get paralyzed. I would, like, become paralyzed, get out of being paralyzed, maybe be okay for, like, five minutes, and then get paralyzed again. So... We started obviously going to, my mom took me to a neurologist because like she always would have these little thoughts. She's like, 
maybe, you know, maybe it's not Lyme for once. Maybe it's something else. Everybody kind of always has those little hopes that it would be something else because maybe if it's something else, one, it will be covered by insurance, but two, maybe they can actually like do something about it. So we were going to all these neurologists and I had all these tests done. They couldn't find anything. I had like the nerve testing done. They couldn't find anything there. So finally I just kept, and I, the whole time I just, I was just letting her do her thing, but I just kept saying, mom, it's Lyme. I know it's Lyme. We need to go see a Lyme doctor. Like I know this is Lyme. So finally she agreed. And so we went back to a Lyme doctor. Nobody has been able to officially, I guess, figure out what it is. They think one person said that they think that it could be due to the methylation issues from the MTHFR. One person said they think it could be Babesia. And then some other people think that it could be conversion disorder, which is basically my body's way of manifesting my anxiety and stress is to just make my body go paralyzed. So I have horrible anxiety from the Lyme because I never was like this before. And my anxiety and stress definitely causes all my symptoms to get worse. But the paralysis, I guess it can cause that to happen. So that that I guess is what mainly triggers it. There's been three different causes identified by your different doctors. Some of them think it's conversion disorder, that your anxiety is getting so severe that you're becoming paralyzed because you're so anxious about your, your disease and your symptoms. Others believe it's actually the Babesia causing the paralysis. And then others believe that it's actually the MTHFR genetic disorder and the in, inability to detox causing the paralysis. Is that correct? Yes. And you personally believe that it's actually the anxiety causing you to become paralyzed because you get so nervous about your symptoms. It's not even like about my symptoms. It's just my anxiety. It's so much better now, but it used to be like about like the most like stupid little things I would get anxious about. And it would be like, I would cry because I was mad that I was anxious about these things. Cause I'm not that kind of person. Like I'm not an emotional person. I don't cry. I'm not the kind of, I only cry. I said, I've cried a bunch. I only cry when I'm, um, and like very frustrated. I don't cry when I'm in pain. I cry when I'm frustrated. So like, I'm not the kind of person that gets anxious about little stupid things that I have no control over. And that was happening to me. I was just getting so anxious about all of these things. So I think that it's the Lyme causing the anxiety because I know that Lyme can do that and can cause all these emotional problems, um, which in turn caused the paralysis from like the conversion disorder aspect. Do you believe that the Babesia has had an impact on your detoxing? I don't know. I, Babesia was like my worst symptom or my caused my most symptoms at it for one point for a very long time. Like I would have tremors for forever, heart palpitations and all kinds of stuff. So Babesia has been like one of my main issues for a very long time. So I think that Babesia has caused a lot of my problems, but I don't really know if it has anything to do with my detoxing. I just, most of my detoxing stuff I lump with my MTHFR. When you had enough and you said, I'm going off everything, I just, I can't be treated anymore. And you had that 10 month window of no treatment. What impact did that have on your overall health at that point? I started to live a little bit more. I had made some friends at the University of Maryland. And so I would go there and hang out with them sometimes, actually kind of like living like a real college person. My brother was at school in Baltimore at this point. Um, which is only an hour from me. And I would go there and hang out with him and his friends sometimes and like go out with them. So I actually was able to like live a little bit more. And this was also kind of fun because everybody that I went to high school with and everyone that knew me, knew me as the Lyme girl or the sick kid. 
And so it was fun to go out with people that they wouldn't be able to tell from looking at me because it is an invisible illness that something was wrong. But still, it would be like, I can remember one time going to my brother's in Baltimore and I had to go downstairs and like take a nap before we went out because I was so exhausted. Like I still, even though I wasn't during treatment, I still wasn't like a hundred percent. I was still sick, but it definitely gave me a little bit more freedom to be able to go and actually do some things. So like everything was pretty much fine until the paralysis started again. I had been doing acupuncture at that point just for like to help with pain and some stuff. Like I had, I've had stomach issues for forever. So a lot of GI issues and like people are telling us that acupuncture can help with that. So um, there was a lady like 10 minutes down the road for me that does it. So I was going there and that was pretty much all I was doing. And then the paralysis started and she's actually the one. So one time I got paralyzed on the acupuncture table and I told her and she was like, I'm going to try something. So there's this spot on the bottom of my foot. And she says that they call it in like her Chinese medicine world, they call it waking the dead. And so she stabbed me with the needle there pretty hard. And it actually like makes me get unparalyzed. So from that point on, I actually still to this day, I travel around with acupuncture needles with me at all times. But during that time period when I was getting paralyzed every single day, I actually crocheted myself because that's what I do. I crochet. That was my fun thing. I crocheted myself a carrying case and I carried around the acupuncture needles with me, like literally attached to my body at all times. So if I was paralyzed, whoever was with me would just be able to stab me. So Cassidy, you had actually shared with us a video of this where you were in the car, I believe with your cousin and you were yep. paralyzed and they had to take your foot in the back seat, take out the acupuncture needle. And I think they missed the first time and got the wrong spot. And <laughs> Second time, it was visibly obvious that they hit the right spot. And just to literally see you go from this paralyzed, couldn't move state to just like waking up immediately. So we will share that yep. to our social media post after we post this podcast that we'll share that video for our followers as well. But how did you then proceed? I mean, you started to get paralysis more and more and more. You crocheted yourself this pouch to carry these, these needles with you at all times. What did you do next to try to improve your health? So then I was going to see this doctor again, but also, so when the paralysis started, I was still in school and I actually got paralyzed driving home from school one day. So I was like one street away from my house. So when I get paralyzed, I can actually feel it coming normally. Some, most of the time I can feel it. And normally my left side will go paralyzed first. And sometimes it will be my entire body. Sometimes it will just be my legs. Sometimes it will just be my left side. Sometimes it's so bad I can't even open my mouth which is that video that in the car I was I couldn't open my mouth but so I was driving home from school got paralyzed I couldn't lift my right leg but I was able to shift my foot from the gas to the brake and I ended up literally just coasting home into my driveway I don't even remember if I put my car in park or if my dad saw me and came and put my car in park but he had to come and like stab me in my front seat of my car and from then I wasn't allowed to drive anymore because I was paralyzed. So once again, I had to stop going to school. I started going back to treatment. We started treating my methylation issues. I ended up getting put on an even stricter diet. I had to stop eating potatoes because they're high in folic acid. And folic acid apparently is bad for people with MTHFR. So I had to stop that. And I was doing a whole bunch of supplements with this woman. and. It seemed to help. She also had me doing something, which is like, it was another kind of like herbal homeopathic drops because 
back to where it all began. So they think I had the Lyme in my system for like over 10 years. But what triggered it to come out when I was 14 was I got my HPV vaccine. I had the last dose of my HPV vaccine and two days later, my first headache started. And we've actually found like a correlation. I've like asked a bunch of other Lyme people and uh, I actually have a friend and she had her HPV shot and then had her first seizure in the office right after her shot. And then her Lyme symptoms sprung from there. Like something in that vaccine that triggers the bacteria to become active. I don't know. But if she was like, this doctor was shocked that nobody had ever treated that or acknowledged it. So she gave me some sort of drops that were supposed to help with that if there were any lingering effects in my body still from that shot. So I'm not sure if that's what helped, but something in there all helped. I started going back to see a therapist. I had seen a few therapists throughout my Lyme journey because of depression and anxiety. So I started seeing a new one who actually specialized in conversion disorder and she helped me a lot. I still see her. And this is when I also started doing medical marijuana. And I think that helped tremendously. And I still do that as well. So in addition to medical marijuana, have you tried CBD oil for, for your pain? I tried CBD oil like orally for my pain uh, years ago, and I never really noticed anything, but I've used CBD oil like topically and it's magical. My most recent doctor that I was going to, they would do acupuncture and this thing called gua sha, which is like a Japanese technique to me and they would do cupping but they would use cbd oil on my back before they would do these things and i literally like when i would leave there i would call my mom every time and i would tell her i was like is this what it's like to not have like pain for once i felt like an entirely different person it's so helpful so cassidy are you saying that when you took the cbd oil sublingually under your tongue it really didn't have an impact but when you applied the cbd oil topically to part of your body where you're experiencing pain it helped you reduce the pain on that part of the body Yes. How would you compare the medical marijuana to the CBD oil? What benefits did you get from one versus the other that you didn't get in the other? The medical marijuana, I basically didn't sleep for like, I guess this was six-ish years at the time. I had horrible sleep. I had horrible insomnia. I would be up every night basically until three in the morning or later. I would wake up every night, multiple times a night. I had to have sleep studies done and like I didn't go into REM sleep. I actually had my grandmother get me a Fitbit just so I could track my sleep because I wanted to see if I ever like go into REM sleep and I like didn't. And my doctor was just like, you can't heal if you are not sleeping. Like sleep is how our bodies heal. So uh, that's why I really started doing the medical marijuana was to help me sleep. And it did. It, like, it was a lot of things that I was doing at one time that I think all together combined really helped me to get over the paralysis. Um, like the big time paralysis. So I finally started sleeping. I was treating all of those things with the herbal stuff. And then I was also doing like the detoxing and I was seeing the therapist. So it was like a lot of things combined, but that definitely helped. And at nighttime, it has THC in it, which a doctor actually told me like for the anxiety and for the conversion disorder, I need one that's high in THC. And that's the part of it that it makes you get high. And I'm like... <laughs> Or most people, I guess, when I go to the dispensary to get this and they see me and I'm like a 21-year-old girl going in there and I look normal and fine. They're like, oh, she's just using this to get high. But literally, like, I that makes me anxious to think about that. So I literally smoke it and I hop into my bed and I go to sleep. I'm like, I don't want to have to experience anything that could come with this. I'm literally just using this for medical purposes. But then I also have one that 
is just strictly CBD that I smoke as well sometimes if I need to. And I've only ever had to use that one. I can count. I've only ever had to use that five times. And that is if I'm ever having a very bad, what I call like brain day. The first time I ever had to use that, I was trying to write a paper for school and I could not get my eyes to focus. They just would not focus on anything. I could not form like a coherent thought to like try to type this out. I was like, what am I going to do? So I smoked the CBD one, sat there for like 20 minutes. And all of a sudden it was like a flip switched in my mind. And it was like, everything was crystal clear. I knew exactly what I was going to do. I sat there for two hours. I wrote like the best paper ever. I wrote a few blogs. It was like very helpful. So I've only ever had to use that a handful of times, but they both have been very helpful in getting me to where I am today. And then actually I was able to stop the medical marijuana for a while because it I wasn't getting paralyzed anymore and my sleep was still good. And I was able to stop it. But a few months ago, I recently had to start it up again because I was getting paralyzed again and my sleep was not good anymore. From that point forward, did you try any additional therapies, go on any additional treatment, or is that the same maintenance protocols that you're on today? I did that for a little while. And then when I went on the first Lyme education tour, I was doing really well. So I had stopped treatment and stuff again. I was doing just like maintenance stuff. And then I could tell that things were a little bit getting a little weird again, August of 2018, I guess. The doctor that I was seeing, she moved to California. All my doctors always leave. So she moved to California, and then the practice that she was at got bought by this other woman, and they were doing Chinese medicine. So I started doing that last August, and I did that until this past June. So they would do acupuncture, and they would they had these things. They're called classical Chinese pearls, they're, but they're just like pills, but there's like, you can actually like Google them and they have all these different like uses for them. They, in their way, I guess, they always told me that my body was full of heat, which was another form of telling me that my body was toxic and it had no way of getting out of me. So like through the acupuncture, through the sauna, they would, it would come out. Once again, a few more dietary changes I had to go through and stuff. So I was doing that. And within like my first few months of that, I felt awesome. And I was doing really well. I was in school still, like just felt really great. And then I think in like October of last year, I got a sinus infection and I ended up going to just like the regular primary care doctor in my town. They put me on like antibiotics for a few days. It cleared up, but then my Lyme symptoms were coming back at me. So I was still doing the Chinese medicine. So, but it kind of threw us for a loop and took us back a few steps. Then we had to try to rebuild from that. I wasn't getting paralyzed anymore. Then this last spring, I had a super crazy semester at school. I was in three classes. I technically had, I think it was like four or five jobs. So everything was pretty crazy. I was just so run down. I was having a ton of female problems. And I was having a ton of GI issues too. For a long time, when I was first sick, people would always like tell me like this one woman, she told me she was like, you look like a ghost. Like I just looked very sickly. And then she would tell me a few years ago, she was like, oh my gosh, you look like a normal person. And then in the spring, she saw me and she was like, you look like a ghost again. I was just completely drained. So I ended up fixing the female issues that helped. I ended up, I think that actually helped tremendously. So 
if you want me to get into that in detail, I can, but. Real quick, many of our guests have noted that they have ended up with endometriosis and Lyme. We've noticed at least a correlation between many female Lymes and endometriosis. Is that something that you've experienced yes. as well? Yeah. So like I said, I'm not shy, so I'll get into it. But um, so I've always had very painful periods and they used to be very heavy too. So I ended up being put on birth control when I was like 14, I think, or 15. I think I was 15. I got put on birth control. And I also, before I got put on the birth control, I had horrible Lyme rage. So I would like randomly just have these like outbursts and I would just like scream. I would cut, it was always like targeted at my sister, but I would just like cuss her out. And then two seconds later, I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't know what just happened. And so like, I had no control over my emotions. My period was very painful and very heavy. So they put me on oral birth control and that helped and everything was fine for years. Well, when I got my pulmonary embolism, I had to be taken off the birth control because birth control has a clotting effect. So I went like three years without being on birth control. And then this past November, my period was still very painful. They actually put me on, which like it never clicked in my mind until this past spring, but they actually had me take a prescription pain medicine that is like so powerful that you're only allowed to take it for like five days in a row. And then you're not allowed to take it again for like a few weeks because it's that powerful. So that's what I would be taking when I was on my period because it was that painful. I literally have been attached to my heating pad for the past like five years, like on my stomach that to the point that this past summer, I actually ended up developing arrhythmia ab igni, which is a rash from your heating pad because of overuse from it, from my period cramps and all my GI issues. But so in November, my period started getting so bad that literally I was bleeding for three weeks out of the month. So only one week out of the month, I wouldn't be. So I was just completely drained because that's a lot on your body. My pain was so bad. Like at times it would make me throw up. So I actually had an internship last spring with the Mighty, the online blog site that's like dedicated to people with illnesses and stuff. And I was writing an article on endometriosis and I was reading what these women were saying. And I was like, oh my God, that's me. I was like, that's exactly what I have right now. That's exactly what it sounds like. And then I posted about it in my support group and so many other girls kept, they were like, I have endo and Lyme. I have endo and Lyme. So I went to the doctor and they were like, yeah, it sounds like you could have it, but they don't want to, like the only way to do like the definitive test for it really is if they put you under and they open you up. And they said, they don't want to do that with me, especially with my history of my clot. So they said really the only way to treat it is with birth control. So it was a, long process trying to get that all figured out because of my history with the blood clot but I worked with my hematologist and with them and we were able to find out that if I got the implant in my arm that that was the safest route for me and so I got that put in in the beginning of May and have been so much better since then so that was super helpful but that took so long to figure out that that was what was causing the issues. We met you this just about a month ago, this past summer, and you sound mm -hmm. great, you look great, you were super active, you put on an amazing presentation for us and, and all the children here in New York on Long Island, but how do you feel today? It's iffy. So this past summer, I felt really great. I thought that I was going to be like struggling because Dr. Fox and I traveled so far. We traveled 11,000 miles in the car. So I was like, I thought I was going to be a hot mess, but I was actually doing pretty well. But um, I've been in school now for about a month and it's definitely this is my last semester I'm taking three classes so I've been part-time the entire time that I have 
been at MC, my community college. And so this is like the most courses that I've taken, I guess, at one time is three and they're all 200 level courses. So they're a little bit harder and there's more work. And then I'm also, I nanny. So I go to school Tuesday and Thursday and then I nanny my niece and nephew Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And so that's a two and a half year old and a four month old. So I'm very tired, <laughs> but I'm still doing okay. But like this past Thursday, I had a big test and I had a presentation and I had work all day on Wednesday. And then I also am a DJ. So I worked on Wednesday night. So I was just very exhausted and I did not feel well at all on Thursday. I was just so exhausted. Everyone kept, my friends kept asking me if I was okay. Cause like they could see that I did not feel well. Um, I had tremors really bad. But then once I got home, I went in my sauna. I sweated so much. It was so gross, but I ended up feeling much better. So I have my moments. And then if I take my right steps, then I, I either exercise or I sauna or both. And I make sure I'm sweating. I'm able to counteract them, I think. So overall, I'm doing pretty well. So Cassidy, the wonderful thing about doing this podcast for me and Matt is that so many of our guests have gone through a positive transformation when they've had this terrible chronic experience. And I don't think anyone has gone through a greater transformation, at least that we've interviewed, than you. So can you share with us what positive things have come out of this Lyme journey? Oh my goodness, there have been so many. <laughs> so first off is my best friends. So there's these girls that I met all of us met on Twitter when it was like a year into my treatment and we all met, we bonded over our Lyme and our love of Disney. And since then we have had a group text message and they are my best friends and we text, we used to text every day, but now we're all in college or working and stuff. So we text every once in a while. But so one of them lived in Rhode Island. One is from upstate New York. One is from Annapolis, Maryland, which was only an hour away from me. And then one is from South Carolina. And we ended up, we've got together a handful of times. So we like met in Annapolis one year. We met in Rhode Island one year. They all came here one year. I've gone and seen each of them individually too. And they're just, I never would have met these girls if I didn't have Lyme and they have changed my life in such a positive way. And are literally my, my some of my best friends that they know more about me than any other people do because we share the nitty gritty with each other because we were all experiencing it. So that's definitely a positive that has come out of this. Obviously, my best friend, Dr. Nancy Fox, I never would have met her without this and got to experience the whole journey that is the LEAF program. And I am so grateful for that because it definitely, as you said earlier, it made me mature a lot earlier than I should have probably. I experienced a lot of things that kids my age shouldn't have had to deal with. And that can be a negative, but I think I've kind of turned it into a positive because it has shown me what is wrong with the world and showed me that I need to be one of the people that needs to try to fix that. So it helped me to change myself from being a self-centered 14-year-old that only cared about myself and what I'm doing than that now I need to help all of these other people that are out there that need help and don't have anybody fighting for them. And that's like the greatest gift that this illness has given me is that kind of outlook on the world. And that says without this, I would not do that. And I probably wouldn't care very much. <laughs> 
So Cassidy, let's talk about your outreach. And the first part of your outreach I'd like to talk about is the LEAP program and Dr. Nancy Fox, who we absolutely love. I mean, we fell in love with Dr. Fox. We interviewed her, and then we had the blessing of meeting you and Dr. Fox, and we fell in love with her even more. But one of the things that I found very interesting about you and Dr. Fox, and I spoke about that a little bit during the introduction, is that my expectations of your relationship with Dr. Fox were very different than the reality. So can you talk to us first of all, how you met Dr. Fox and how the two of you started to work together? So it's a very funny story, but so for the past like five years or so, or six years, I guess, I've been begging my mom to start an in-person support group here because like I said, we know so many people in our area that have Lyme, it's very endemic here, but we just had never got around to it. There was always something else going on in our lives that we weren't able to. So I think it was two years ago, we were at a meeting because we were actually talked to Nat Cap Lime is who we were working with to start our support group. And we were at one of their meetings and Dr. Fox was there pitching her idea for the LEAF program tour for that summer. And while she was there, she was like talking about like she wanted to have like an intern or someone to assist her. And they asked, well, can't you find a volunteer? And she was like, uh, I don't know. And I just shot up. And I was like, I will do it. Because like, as she was talking, I just kept hitting my mom in the arm. I was like, this is what I've been telling you about. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to do. This Because I've always just said, I just want to help people. I don't want any other kids to end up like me to have to go through this awful ordeal that I have gone through. And they just don't know anything about it. So when I heard what she was doing, I fell in love with it. And then that's how I met her. I gave her my information. And then like two months later, she texted me and said, I'm going to Maine. Do you want to come? And I said, yep. So my dad met her. This is when I think I had just come off of my paralysis and I had like just kind of started driving again. So I got in the car with her. My parents just let me get in the car with this woman that I had only met once. And we drove nine hours and became best friends. (laughs) Cassidy, Dr. Fox is one of the true superheroes in the Lyme community. I mean, she's absolutely heroic. She's brilliant. She's a brilliant writer. She's a brilliant speaker. And I'd like you to share with us how your relationship developed and changed over time from this first meeting you had with her, where you volunteered to go with her to Maine, to where you two are now. We didn't really know each other, like I said. And that first car ride, we literally didn't turn on the radio once. We just talked the entire time. I think the entire way there and the entire way back, I think on the way home, we turned on the radio for an hour and then we discovered that we liked the same music and that just helped our love for each other grow even more. But that car ride there, we literally just shared everything. And that's another thing I think with Lyme people is that you just know that you can talk about the dark and scary things and you know you're not going to be judged because they probably feel the same way and understand it. And that's kind of how we were. We just shared everything and it brought us so much closer. And we, we, we say we're best friends just 30 years apart because we like the same music. We both love Hallmark Channel. That's what we do on tour. We just watch Hallmark Channel. And like we talk to each other. Now we talk to each other at least like three times a week on the phone because we are each other's best friends and we do everything and we work together and we have the same vision and goals. And I just love that woman. She is definitely, like you said, a superhero in the community because she went and even though she was still fighting it at the time, she went and created this curriculum and to try to help children so that they don't get sick. And I think that is so admirable. Tell us about the social media elements of the work that you do for the LEAF program. 
So I am our social, I'm the vice president, but also the social media coordinator, I guess. I run all of our accounts. So I run our Facebook, our Instagram. I do our Twitter, but I'm very bad at it because I just forget to run Twitter. <laughs> but my sister is actually in marketing. So she actually helped me and gave me a bunch of tips of how to like help our followers out just grow and to help our Instagram be more fluid and everything. So she's been a great help with that. And then I also reach out to like news organizations and stuff to try to get our message out there and to have us get more outreach because Lyme is everywhere and the Lyme education needs to be everywhere. So Cassidy, you also have engaged in outreach outside of your work with Dr. Fox, the other part of your dynamic duo, and you're, you're also engaging in the creation of groups for young people. Can you share with our listeners the work you're doing in that arena? Yeah, so about a year into my Lyme journey, I was really depressed. I It was just around, I can remember, the softball tryouts at my high school were happening, and it was the first time that I was not going to be playing softball in my like whole entire life. And I was just very, very down in the dumps. And my sister, who is a writer, she came to me and she said, I think you need to start a blog. So she helped me set it up, and I started writing my blog, The Lyme Diary. And through there, I kept finding people would like reach out to me and tell me like their daughter's going through the same thing and they would love for them to reach like talk to me and stuff and then I was meeting all these people on Twitter that had the same thing and I said you know what there needs to be somewhere for us kids to go because I was part of all these support groups on Facebook but they all had adults in them that were having issues with like their spouse not understanding what was going on or having to take care of their kids or work but I wasn't having those same issues I was having issues with not being able to go to school or missing out on hanging out with my friends and stuff. So I created a support group on Facebook called Teens with Lyme. And when we first started off, there was about 20 of us in the group. And we just, it's just a place for us to go and we would vent. And if we had a new symptom come up, we would share that and try to find out if anyone else had the same problem. We talk about doctors, like what's worked for some people, what hasn't worked for some people. It's just a place to go to, to find people that are actually understanding and because in this journey, it's very easy to feel alone. And especially as a kid to sit there and have to watch as all your friends are living the life that you want to live. It's so nice to be able to have people that actually understand that, not just someone that says, oh, I get that when they really don't get that. My mom and I always say, you don't get it until you get it. And this support group is a place where everybody literally does get it. So now it's actually like 450 people in the group and from all over the place. I have people from different countries in there, which is wild. And it's just amazing that the name is actually now Teens and Young Adults with Lyme because we've all grown up together through this and we all joined it. We were 15 years old. Now we're all in our 20s, but there are new people joining every day because people are still getting sick every day here. So It's been one of the best things, and I go on there sometimes and just see how far we've all come together, and that's just a great feeling to know that I guess I helped this happen to help all of these people find these friends, and like I've seen some of my friends and I, we met up after this group, but I've seen other people that met through the group that have then met in person from this group, so it's just a really amazing thing. So Cassidy, you are doing some unbelievably heroic work, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about what this past summer was like and how you dedicated your entire summer to helping other people avoid the challenges that you faced. Last year was our first summer with the Lyme Education Tour, and we did, I think it was like 10 states last year, maybe. Well, this past summer, 
it was like seven weeks long and we went to 16 states we traveled 11,000 miles in the car because we just drive around in Nancy's Prius <laughs> and it was just incredible we saw I think it was a, close to 4,000 kids but technically I like to say it's over 5,000 because we were in Windsor Connecticut and they actually the school system there purchased the curriculum so now all the kids in that school district are learning from Nancy's curriculum this year so that 1,100 kids right there. So that's pretty crazy. But it was just amazing. But it was also heartbreaking at the same time. I remember one time I called my mom and I was almost in tears in the hotel room because we had just left. I think we were somewhere in Virginia. And it was a very like endemic area. We were in like a tick haven. Like I was panicking while I was out there teaching these kids this stuff because we were in the woods. We were right by water. I was just like, oh my gosh, the amount of ticks that are probably here right now. And these kids knew absolutely nothing about Lyme. They knew nothing about ticks. Even the counselors, I remember we left and the counselor was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to tell their parents they should do tick checks. And me and Nancy just kind of looked at each other like, oh my gosh, like they didn't even know to do tick checks. So it was just really eye-opening that we, in our world, we think everybody knows about Lyme now because that's all we're surrounded by. But in reality, people still don't know it and they still don't believe it. They don't understand the severity of it. So it was just very eye-opening to see how much more education is still needed out there and that how relief program is needed everywhere, I think. So Cassidy, you actually blessed our community with a presentation, and I can tell you that it was universally celebrated by everyone who attended that brilliant presentation that you and Nancy had given. And Matt actually has shared some of the video that he had taken of your particular presentation. Now, I'm not going to ask you to give the entire presentation, but if you could give a couple of points to the folks who are listening to this podcast about what they should do if they found themselves bitten by a tick, what would those points be? So the first thing, if you find a tick, is you need to remove it properly. And there are certain steps that you need to take. And I know when you find a tick, people panic and they don't know what to do, but the key is to remove it properly. So we actually have what we call our T-I-C-K-S steps. You go to the LEAF program website, it has them all, but the most important thing is that once you remove the tick, you need to keep it and then you need to send it off to get tested because as we know, the testing on humans is not good. It is inaccurate, but so it's actually better to get the ticks tested to find out exactly what diseases that tick could be carrying with it so that you can know what potential illnesses you are now exposed to. But the most important thing I think is prevention. So that would be, we always say like staying away from the areas where ticks are, which I know can be hard at times. So if you do have to go there, wearing the right tick repellent. And I personally like the more like natural ones with like essential oils and stuff. But then for my clothes, I spray them down with the permethrin, basically kill the ticks when they climb on you and wearing light colors. So if you are outside and there's a tick crawling on you, hopefully you can see that crawling on your light green shirt, maybe. But I think prevention is definitely key to stopping the spread of it as well as people are more aware of how to protect themselves. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with Cassidy Colbert. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Cassidy Colbert and her tick disease journey, please visit her Facebook at Cassidy Colbert, her Instagram at Lyme Education Tour or Cassidy Marie, M-A-R-E-E 30. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, 
We here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick Bite Blueprint that is inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates for our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.